Father, there is no greater joy than gathering with your people, coming together to let our hearts overflow the joy that we have in you, up to you to make a joyful noise together, to sing your praise and to make much of all that you have done, glorify you. But Father, we thank you that it's not just our voices that we hear. We, when we come, we come as well in, in many ways as, as the primary goal is to be addressed by you, to hear your word. And we identify with the Israelites those many years ago as they waited to hear your word from your servant. And so we pray now that you would speak and impress upon us these words that you gave to your people back then and today that you give to your people once again. Come in power, we pray, and point out the glory of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The golden calf, the golden calf, that's where we're heading today. I hope you can see this background here. This is an artist's rendering of Mount Sinai and uh, the mountain that Moses would have climbed up and then uh, the camp down below, uh, all in their tents and and huddled up. Um, This would have been a bit of their experience. I want you to be aware here, they could see the mountain. It was still wrapped in smoke. The presence of the Lord was there. The flashes of lightning and the, and the thunder and the shaking. It was all still going on. As these chapters unfold, Moses is up in the midst of it. So these people do a few things here that blow our minds. Before we get there, though, I want to cover chapter 31 because it's uh, kind of a handoff from what is Uh, has been our study and our focus the last number of weeks. And then as we move into this completely sudden change of events, it's it's so out of the flow, and that's part of what it was like for Moses. It was a shock and a surprise. So let's begin with chapter 31, verses 1 through 18. I titled this, uh, Gifted for Work and Reminded to Rest. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezazel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and the furnishings, all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments and the holy garments for Aaron and the priests and the garments for his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So let's consider this a little bit here. You have these two men specifically called out by name as leaders in this. The first, Bezazel, was a man who was gifted by God, it, it, described as 
set upon, the Spirit of God was given to this man in a special way. He was the craftsman of craftsmen. And so all of these who would be working would be kind of taking their cue from his artistic direction. And God gave great detail, but there was still a lot of room for these artisans to build this out. And God wanted their craftsmanship to be on display as they obeyed all of these very detailed commands. And then Oholiab was to also direct all of the able uh, men who were given these things by the Lord. It stuck out to me as I went through the different times that God says, I have, I have. Look at this, verse 2, I have called by name. Verse 3, I have filled him. Verse 6, I have appointed. And also in verse 6, I have given to all able men ability. God is giving what is needed to accomplish the mission he has assigned. There's a point of application for us. If we see this great commission that we have, as great as it is, we should be completely overwhelmed by it. But God doesn't call us to change the world and turn it upside down in the power of his name and not equip us to do that. He has, too, given us, as a permanent seal, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within us as the power behind the work that we are to do. And it's just an awesome thing to see. He doesn't just call them to do a work that is impossible for them to do. He provides for them. He gifts them. He appoints able-bodied men and then puts them to work. The second half of chapter 31 shows us the priority once again of the Sabbath. This is by way of reminder because there's already been two times that we've seen the Sabbath and this commandment given for this day to be set apart. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. That's a little greater clarity. Put to death. Uh, Death is on the line once again. Life or death hang in the balance based upon our obedience to his commands in these things. Six days work shall be done. Work will be done, but on the seventh day, the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, lest we think that God is not that troubled about how we understand origins. He ties the Sabbath directly back to the testimony of Genesis in Genesis 1 and 2. In six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And the seventh day, he what? He rested. It's a big deal. Lest your uh, biology teacher disagree, you, believer, need to stand firm on what the Scripture says. Because I'm pretty sure the person who was there has more authority than any teacher you're ever going to have. Okay? Take God at His word. He is the witness of His handiwork. 
And this evolution garbage takes far more faith to believe than Genesis 1 and 2. Now, verse 18, look at this. He gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. If you're Moses and you have been up in the presence of God, you have, you have dwelt in the presence of God up on the mountain in the middle of all of this amazing display for 40 days and 40 nights. And now you have completed, written in the hand of God, with the finger of God, carved into these two tablets, the law. Imagine what that would be like. I, I just picture the joy of Moses. He, he has to be antsy to say, oh, can I go tell them? Can I, I want to show them these tablets. I want them to see and then hear your words. Lord, I can't wait to get down and share with these people. Which is a stunning letdown. A sad, sad, sad transition. And so I think purposely this flow of the text is given to us to show the, this kind of crescendo of God's revelation and call and the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. He gave it to the people. He even wrote it on the tablets of stone himself. And Moses has two tablets, one representing God's commitment, the other representing the people's commitment, both tablets the same, exactly uh, carbon copies of one another, and now he's going to carry them down to the people. In a sense, to reaffirm before them this covenant that they've already agreed to before he went up to the mountain. And then comes chapter 32. Let's dig in here and see this. Impatience, insurrection, and idolatry. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Just pause and consider this for a sec. They're waiting and they're wondering. When Moses left, he didn't say, hey guys, here's the deal. You guys hang on, it's going to be more than a month. I'm going to be up there 40 days and 40 nights. Then I'm coming down. No, they had no clue how long he'd be up there. Some people who probably weren't fans of Moses already from a number of the decisions that he had made according to the will of God began to grumble. Well, what are we going to do? We can't just wait here forever. He's probably dead. God probably just struck him down. We should do something. We should take matters into our own hands. Maybe others were like, well, hey, if we don't do something, those Amalekites are coming back. I mean, we, we've already been attacked once. We need to do something. And others... That inclination and that comfort of hundreds of years of living in a land just replete with idols. We don't even have any idols to look to. How are we supposed to defend ourselves? What are we to do if we're going to take the land? We need something more than we have. The waiting and wondering led to this. We don't know what happened to this Moses the, the man that the Lord appointed to lead us? Ah, let's write him off. Let's do what we think needs to be done. You see the insurrection in this? 
You see this, this rebellion against God's appointed leader? How many times have we already seen this? This grumbling, this, this trying. Now it's just like, let's abandon it. What should we do instead? Well, they go to Aaron. And in very direct, very strong words, they say, make us gods. Now, the word Elohim there can be understood either in the plural or the singular. And so the ESV has chosen to go with the plural. Uh, the plural. I've heard uh, other commentators say that this should be understood in the singular. But since the ESV went this way, we'll go this way as well. Uh, just to be clear, there's only one calf that's made. So when they say gods, they're thinking represented in this one calf. But Aaron, they go to Moses' older brother, the, the guy who was left in charge. You make us gods who shall go before us. Well, what do we want to do? We're going to go take the promised land. That's what, we're tired of this wilderness, and we're tired of waiting. We're going to go do something. But in, in order to do that, we need something that we can see that goes before us. This whole follow the Lord that we can't see, we're not into that anymore. Hmm. The question just begs, what was Aaron thinking? Do you feel that? I mean, in you, Aaron, what are you doing, man? Look at what he does. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. And bring them to me. So all the took, uh, people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, the calf. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought, up and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Hmm. Interesting. There's a few things that maybe were happening for Aaron in this. One, he might have been afraid. The people had resolved, or at least a representation of the people had come to him in very strong words, and they had given him directions. He had a decision to make. Will I fear these people more than I fear God? The answer was, yeah. He made the wrong decision. He was more afraid of the consequences of standing firm and saying, absolutely not. Why would we abandon the commandment of God that we heard with our own ears before Moses went up on the mountain? Commandments 1 and 2, we heard from the very mouth of God. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall have no carved image. Why would we do that? But Aaron says nothing. The fear of man. Fear of man. He gives way to this terrible suggestion for the building of an idol. And not only does he give way to it, he builds it himself. He builds it, carves it. The gold rings that were in the ears of all those who came out from where? From Egypt. This is Egyptian gold. This, this, is, this is gold 
that God lavished upon his people in an overwhelming display of blessing on their way out of the land. They asked and they received. And they put these earrings in their ears and they were adorned with the blessing of God and they took it and they made it into a golden calf. An abomination for the Lord. Something like this. I didn't want to be too specific and I thought about having a spray painted gold thing up here and then I'm like, man, I don't don't even want to come close to that. I don't want anybody singing and being like, what is that? That's not how we roll here. No. Golden calf. Why a calf? Well, the fertility. This was a well-known symbol of fertility both in Egypt and in Canaan. Uh, The calf was born in the spring and it showed that there was the blessing of the gods. And so here we have a golden calf, a precious carved image shattering the commandment of the Lord done by the guy who is going to be appointed as the first high priest. Mm. They said, who are they? Don't you want to know? Aaron didn't say this. He makes the calf. They said to Israel, there is a group, an identifiable group of people who are now speaking on behalf of not just Moses, but also Aaron. In a sense, they have put Aaron in a puppet role. You do what we want, and then when you do it, we will speak on your behalf. So the they is significant. You might circle that in your Bible. Who are, the, who are these people? Well, I think we'll find out in a few verses. These are your gods, O, o Israel. This calf is the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you, if you want to get struck dead in a heartbeat, unbelievable that they would say that. After all that they had gone through, walking on dry land, all of the plagues, right? Think of the impact of these words. And Israel says, awesome. Let's have a party. Let's have a party. Impatience is where this all begins. An unwillingness to wait for God. Insurrection, I'm not good with the people that God has appointed to be the leaders. I don't like the way they're leading. In fact, I don't like the way God's leading. Let's just do away with both. We'll make our own God, and then we'll do what we want. Here's what's amazing about this. It's fake. It's fake. Aaron made it from a bunch of golden earrings and he carved it out. And then all of a sudden it's like, that's God? Really? But what they're saying is it's better than faith because we can see it. We can carry it around. And other nations will see it and maybe they'll be afraid of it. We can bow down to it. They choose the fake over the faith. Friends, this applies. We have a God who cannot be seen. We are called to trust in Him, place our faith in Him for our salvation, not in that which can be seen, i.e. our own works of righteousness. All of man-made religion falls into that category. We place our faith in the Savior that we cannot see, but that we can know personally. Tomorrow, 
shall be a feast to the Lord, Aaron says. Why, why would he say this? What's he doing? I think this is an attempt by Aaron to try to reclaim a little bit of what was lost. He, he says, listen, here's what I'll do. I'll build an altar, and this golden calf, we'll, we'll put an altar in front of this calf, and then we'll offer the exact same sacrifices that we did to worship the Lord earlier, the burnt offering and the peace. We'll do that again, and we'll say, Lord, this is a feast to you through the calf. Second commandment. That, I mean, that is literally what God forbid. Don't worship me through vain idols. Don't make images in order to worship me. This is an attempt to bring idolatry together with the worship of the one true God. The modern word for this is syncretism. This is common around the world. It's when you take elements of this and elements of this and you just mash it together and create your own religion. And it's all great, right? This is, well, the God I worship, this is who he is. This is what he's like. And, and I like to worship this way. I, you know, churches, people, I, I just get alone, go up, hug some trees, right? Or, or we've heard this recently, hey, you can be a Christian and a Muslim, right? There, there's no problem there. You can, you know, apply the, the new age practice into Christianity, and there's no issue there, right? That's syncretism. It's time to mash together that which is completely like oil and water. It doesn't fit, doesn't work. It's offensive, and it's idolatrous. So they have this celebration. There is eating, and there is drinking. Some commentators think that there was drunkenness happening, that they ate and they rose up to play means that there was all kinds of pagan debauchery taking place. At least we can say they had a feast and then they rose up to play in that they lost all control. There is no semblance of order. They are just kind of going nuts, doing whatever they feel like. I heard one pastor uh, make a case for why dancing is inappropriate off of this text. That it's not the singing, it's not the dancing, it's not the feast that's wrong. It's the idolatry. That's what's wrong. That's the core issue. It is an abomination to the Lord. What is he going to do? Let's see. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make you a great nation of you. Pause for a second and consider this. Moses' joy just dissipates at this point. Now, Moses has experienced how fickle-hearted the Israelites can be, how quick they are to grumble. But this, this, 
They did what? The Lord sees. He sees all. And he shares this with Moses. And it had to have been absolutely overwhelming for his heart. The excitement of what he was about to bring to them now turns to fear for their very lives. The Lord says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot and I will consume. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to kill them all. And I'll make you, Moses, a great nation. Hmm. God's wrath is righteous, is it not? Is this, is this out of place? How many times in our day do we hear, oh, the God of the Old Testament, just, whoa, cringe. That's not who God is. God is righteous in His wrath and rightly and justly could have done this very thing to satisfy His wrath against the idolaters who had shattered the agreement that they had made. We will keep all these words. We will obey. No, we won't. Hmm. And then Moses the mediator begins to pray. pray. He implores the Lord. Listen, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And verse 14 should completely stun us. The Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses the mediator. Three things in the prayer of Moses that we see here. Number one, his primary focus is not himself. Now, don't miss this because this is no small thing. If you're Moses, you, you've been at that place. Yes, they are stiff-necked people. They, they have done foolish things. They've grumbled against me countless times already. It's not such a bad idea that we could just start over and that you could make the nation for me. Think of the self-focus that might have been in him. But instead, no. This is his focus. The glory of God. The glory of God among the nations, chiefly among the Egyptians. That the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. A God of steadfast love. A God who keeps his promises. A God who brought his people out of slavery and into freedom in the wilderness that they may serve and worship me. That is the first point of his prayer as he intercedes on behalf of Israel. Second, he calls upon the promises of God. 
Remember the patriarchs, Lord, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Remember, you, your promise to them was that you would do this. And he pleads for the Lord to uh, remember or to keep his promise, which he will, right? He will keep his promise. Those promises to those three, unconditional promises. They weren't conditioned like the Mosaic covenant that he had. Those were unconditional promises that, that God said he would bring to fulfillment. And so he pleads both for the glory of God and, and the promises of God for his chosen. And then this last one is fascinating. The purpose of God in sending him down. He heard the first words that God spoke to him. Verse 7, go down, Moses, to the people. Why would the Lord be sending him down if he's going to simply destroy them all? That'd be a good question for Jonah to ask. Lord, why are you sending me to Nineveh if your plan is to destroy them all? You see what's happening here? God is communicating that his threat is real and it, it should take place. But in the face of that, he's sending a mediator. So he raises Jonah up and he sends him despite his reservations, right? And a few obstacles along the way that include a storm and a large fish, right? If you, you, he eventually gets him to Nineveh where he preaches a gospel that saves everybody and the Lord relents of the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on Nineveh. That is the fulfillment of God's plan. In this case, God is sending his mediator with the threat of total annihilation, which he could in fact bring to pass rightly and justly. But instead of that, he chooses to use the intercession of Moses to bring about a relenting of his anger. Say it this way. This relenting that the Lord had was not a changing of the plan of God. It was a fulfilling of the plan of God. And here, here's the thing that will blow our minds about prayer then. Prayer is not something that we do that is exterior to the heart or the plan of God. Prayer is something that God stirs in us that we participate with God in. Why does he work this way? I don't know. He doesn't have to. But don't ever think that when I pray, I'm coming to God to say, listen, God, I know this is what you're thinking, but I think this would be better. Let me fill you in on a few you know, perspectives here. Maybe you, maybe you didn't think about this. Let me give you some wisdom. And I want to change your mind. That's not what Moses is doing. Moses' prayer is the plan. You see, what that does to our prayers? The prayer of Moses was the plan from the beginning. That when Moses would pray, God would relent and the people would be allowed to live. Why? For the same reason that Moses is the pointer to Christ. All of these things are shown up in the same way. Who deserves to die? We all do. What does God do instead? He sends down His Son. That's plan A. That's the fulfilling of His plan. We deserve death. He sends His Son to take our death that we may live. And all of our prayers are part of that plan. Lord, save. Save, we pray. Oh, save. 
Oh God, please save. That tells us how powerful prayer is. Not because it's something exterior to God, but because he chooses to bring our prayers into participation of his sovereign work. Incredible. Now, sinning and singing. Verse 15, Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God. Glorious spectacular work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of a cry for defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And pause this for a second here. Moses meets Joshua as he's coming down the mountain. Joshua, the commander, right, of, of defenses for Israel, already successful against the Amalekites, is not in the midst of this. That's significant. He is not there when this takes place. He's waiting up on the mountain, midway up, for Moses to descend. And then he comes with him down the mountain. He doesn't know what's going on. He thinks it's the sound of war. He He's an army commander. He knows the sounds of war, and he's hearing all this ruckus and this noise. And he says, what's going on down there? There must be war. And they keep descending, and the closer they get, Moses says, that's not war. That's singing. That's singing. Now, Moses knows already what has happened. <laughs> not only have they sinned, but they sing. They celebrate it. They're not remorseful. Verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So Moses comes down and he has, remember, of the, the ceremonial representation of the agreement that's been made. This is, this is law. And the people have shattered their covenant. And so, this was not just some burst of anger that we've seen in, in Moses in the past. He was angry. His anger burned hot. But in a ceremonial display, in view of the people, calling them together, he took these tablets and he shattered them on the ground to say, this is what you've done. To this covenant you have already broken it and then he gets a hold of this golden calf he burns it with fire which is a fascinating thing that i discovered this week uh, the calf was likely for the most part of the inside made with wood and then overlaid with this gold from these earrings such that when you would burn it with fire there's something that's going to actually burn and so the as it would the gold would melt down the wood would burn and you would have this gold kind of oozing into these ashes. And he took then mortar and pestle and a number of people, and they ground into dust this, this golden calf. And then he took it, and he scattered it across the miracle water that the people of Israel drank, this gold dust and ashes of this calf successfully not only destroying but desecrating beyond any hope of being rebuilt. 
That is what the Lord thinks of the golden calf. Out came this calf. He confronts Aaron. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) Wow. You could expect this from a child as an excuse for what happened. You might even expect it from an evolutionist. Lots of time, lots of matter. You put it in a bag, shake it up, and out came this amazing universe. But you don't expect this from the future high priest. To the mediator who has been in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. Out came the scaff. Two classic things on display when confronted with sin. Moses, first of all, he shifts the blame. It's not my fault. These people, they're evil. You know them. Come on, identify with me. Join me in my cynicism against Israel. It's really their fault. It's not like I did anything wrong here. And then downplay the offense, right? So uh, shift the blame. Um, well, the, the woman that you made, she, she, she gave me the fruit. Oh, no, the serpent. It's, it's his fault, you see? And downplay the offense. Well, out came this calf. I mean, it's, it's not like I actually carved it or something or took time to make it or actually make it really impressive downplay the offense friends we have all done this have we not yet really honey it's not my fault if you really think about it it's kind of your fault and it's not that big a deal anyway is it i don't recommend that man as a way to resolve biblically conflicts in your marriage Here's a question. What about leadership? Here, here, here is a very fascinating thing. So Aaron, okay, he, he, he falls down. He, he fails miserably. We know that uh, Joshua, he's up on the mountain. He's a leader. Where are the leaders? The patriarchs of the families. The spiritual leaders of the home. The mighty men who would say, No, we will not bow before a golden calf. This is wrong. Israel, stop. You know, Aaron, do something. Where were the leaders? Here's why all of Israel is complicit. Because while there might be a handful of these who took the reins of insurrection and promoted idolatry, the rest of Israel accommodated it and joined in. How many times throughout history has God raised up one man or one woman who says, I will not. I will not compromise. This is not right. We should not do this. That's who we are to be. That guy, that gal. When all the world just drifts down the stream 
we say no and we swim upstream. We get a backbone. We kick our feet. And we stand against the tide. God can use that to change the course. Think of Martin Luther 500 years ago. Where would we be, friends, without that reformation and his courage to stand? Will we fear man or will we fear God? Now, purging and pleading, verses 25 to 35, will land here. Moses saw that the people had broken loose. For Aaron had let them break loose and the derision to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. So don't miss this. This is God's instructions that he is bringing to these Levites. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother, his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now there's a lot of detail here that we don't have, and so I'm going to try to fill in the gaps of how this went down. Number one, this is God's direct command through Moses that the leaders of this insurrection be, be killed for their sin. And somehow these Levites would strap on their sword and they would go to and fro through the camp. And I think in this they were, they were discerning. Whose side are you on? Are you with the Lord? Are you with Yahweh? Or are you taking this calf? And if they were resolved, unrepentant, and standing firm, I am not with the Lord, they were killed. Even if they were a son or a brother or a family member or a friend, the offense was worthy of death, and 3,000 fell that day. This is to be a theocracy, not a mobocracy. It's not the rule of the mob. Hmm. The next day, the Lord said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gold, uh, gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. We read in Deuteronomy that this was another 40-day experience. In fact, this one was a little different in that Moses says basically he went up into the presence of God, fell on his face, and he stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat or drink. And we say, then that means he died, right? I mean, you can't, you can't live. God supernaturally sustained him during this period of time. And the entire time, he pleaded with the Lord. He pleaded specifically for the people that God would forgive them. You see, the mediator pleading for their forgiveness. And it says that he pleaded specifically for Aaron, his older brother, that God would show him mercy. And forgive him. God told Moses up there he was ready to strike Aaron dead for what he had done. Hmm. Please forgive them or take my life instead. 
What a prayer. This book of life mentioned here, to be clear, there are two books of life. There's the Lamb's book of life that we read about. This is the book that contains all of the elect. Names written before the foundations of the world. Those whom God has chosen to be His sons and daughters eternally. That book was written. That book is complete. That book is never changing. Never will be there a a name that's taken out of that book. That is God's sovereign elected record. And He will bring all the sheep that He has chosen. This book is the book of life. It's the book of the living. Those who are blotted out of this book are dead. That's what he's saying. If if you choose not to forgive them, then kill me in their place. He's offering his life in their place. What a prayer. How will God respond? The Lord said to Moses, verse 33, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So just a few thoughts to close with here. The consequences of their sin remained. The fact that God did not just decimate them and annihilate all of them and start over with Moses was the result of the prayer that God had stirred in Moses' heart to accomplish in his plan. But 3,000 fell, and then the Lord said, I will visit their sin. And we know that an entire generation fell in the wilderness. They did not enter the promised land. They did not cross the Jordan. God wiped them out as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And the younger generation was able to then go in and possess the land. But on top of that, a plague was given. Not a lot of detail here, but people suffered as a result of their sin. And so do we. Even though we can know the forgiveness through Christ, sometimes those consequences have lifelong implications, don't they? Those consequences are not the things that should turn our hearts hard to the Lord, but remind us of His forgiveness and grace that we're alive even if we carry consequences moving forward. How many different ways to apply these chapters? I mean, incredible. Here's a list. We can look at the willingness that we are to have to wait for God in His timing, to take His best at, at His perfect timing, guard against the sin of impatience, or to take matters into our own hands. We, we can learn the importance of faith to trust and obey God, even though we don't see. We don't have the, the tangible nature uh, that other maybe religions have, but we are called to be a people of faith. Trust. We can put to work the power of prayer in fulfilling God's plan. Prayer is powerful. So pray, people of God, pray. And fulfill the plan of God. The courage to stand alone. Fearing God more than fearing man. When everyone in the workplace is going this way, you stand and remain faithful. When everyone in uh, the home is going this way, stay true to the Lord. Whatever situation or circumstance you find, the disastrous consequences of sin 
if you are contemplating sin this morning, be warned. Be warned. God's not playing games with His commandments. He gives us these commandments for our good. And there are consequences for willing disobedience to Him. But I think the heart of this text is the gospel. It's everything that Moses foreshadows as, as serving as a type of Christ, even offering his life for ours, pointing us to Jesus. Let me read this verse from Romans 5, 8 and 9. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, don't miss that phrase, that is the, that's the mind-blowing nature of his love. While we were rebels, singing in our sin, not deserving His love, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, His death, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Friends, we would like to be Moses in this story. We, we would like to be Joshua in this story we would not like to be anybody else. But guess what? We are the people. We're the rebels. We're the sinners. We're those who have rejected the law. We are those who have chosen to do what we want. And we are those who are called to repent of our sins and trust the provision that God has given us in Christ. There is a shelter that can be found from the coming wrath against all sinners, and it is only found in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your lavish love, the gift of Your grace in sending Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means we don't deserve this, but it's real. And how many here in this room have experienced that incredible grace, Lord. We, we, we stand here today as, as trophies of your grace. You overcame our hard hearts. You turned us from our stubborn, sinful way, and you set us on the path of life all through the shed blood of Jesus, our Savior. We give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.